From WBEC Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Nancy Updike, sitting in for Ira Glass. Okay, Val, what are we looking at? So this video, it's from the front lines of the war in Ukraine. It's from a few weeks ago, and it's in Bakhmut, which is a city in the eastern part of the country. And the video is shot by this guy who's part of a team of volunteers who help people get out. He's filming it on a camera that's, like, inside his front coat pocket or something. Yeah, I can tell. It's it's kind of herky-jerky because he's, he's running. Now he's walking, actually. There are low buildings all around, like three or four stories. Yeah, and there are no people in sight. Evacuatio! No cars. It's totally empty. I, I'm going to stop here for some quick background. Valerie, who's been talking me through the video, is my colleague, Valerie Kipnis, a producer at the show. She speaks Russian, understands Ukrainian. She has been watching a lot of these videos, which are a genre in this war. In Bakhmut, the fighting has been terrible for months. The city may already have fallen by the time this airs. Tens of thousands of people left the city in earlier waves. The deputy prime minister of Ukraine said the other week, quote, If you are rational, law-abiding, and patriotic citizens, you should leave the city immediately. But at every front line, in every war, if it's a city, there are people holding out. In Bakhmut, maybe several thousand. Many elderly or disabled people, those caring for them, also diehards. And so ordinary people, like the guy who shot this video, have taken it upon themselves to put on bulletproof vests, somehow get into Bakhmut, and get people out. Take them to a refugee center where they'll be safe. All right, back to this video that Valerie is showing me. The volunteer, a guy named Kuba, is in Bakhmut looking for an older woman who seems to be one of the last people left in this one apartment building. Okay, he's running up the stairs. And you can see this building is, like, totally destroyed. I mean, you can barely see it, but it has a huge hole in it. He's shouting like, evacuation, evacuators. I see. And so he's trying to shout like, hey, come out. Oh, there she is. He found her. And he's saying, like, hey, I'm a, I'm a volunteer. My name's Kuba. I'm here to take you out. I'm here to take you to peace. And she's like, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not packed. And he's like, there's lots of bombs. We have to go. There's clearly no heat. She's in a coat and a hat, and she's got her glasses. And she's like, what do I take with me? And he's like, passports and pictures of loved ones. That's it. Let's go. And she's saying, like, I need to pack grapes and and maybe some sort of, like, pancakes or, or chocolate. And he's like, there's going to be everything there. Come. And then the video jumps ahead, and suddenly they're outside walking. She goes, I got less ready than I would have if there was a fire. And she goes, and my shoes are all broken. They're all falling apart. What am I going to wear there? And he's like, there will be everything there. There will be everything. How many of his videos have you watched? Oh, man. Dozens? Over a hundred?
These evacuations are a whole thing that's happening. There are loose networks of people who do it. There's no one organization behind it. But evacuators just go in, like this guy, Kuba. Sometimes he gets into town, and all he has is a name, maybe from a family member who contacted him, like, can you get out my grandma or my cousin? Maybe he has an address, if the person is still there. And if Kuba can't find it, or he's running out of time, he just jogs through the streets, calling their name out. Lilia! 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 The problem is, people don't always want to go. A lot of people he meets don't want to go. They're not ready, or they don't want to be rescued. Some don't want to leave property, or they don't want to abandon other family members who won't leave. Some think the worst is over, or will soon be over, and that once one side or the other wins, everything will calm down and they'll just learn to live with the outcome, whatever that is. Valerie's been talking with this guy, Kuba Stashik, who works in the East, including Bakhmut. He's a young man, 28. He's Polish. His group has people from all over, including Ukrainians. Kuba says when he's trying to persuade people to go, sometimes maps help. I show them that Russians are pushing from every single direction that they can, and in a couple of days there will be nothing, and that on the next day there may be, I mean, there is a risk that tomorrow we won't reach uh, their house because Russians will cut off the last road. Kuba told Valerie I'm that when he started to, uh, doing this almost a year uh, ago, he wanted to convince every person he talked to to leave. But he's gotten very used to hearing no. Because back then I was like trying to convince anyone, anytime. And right now when there is a heavy shelling and somebody's telling me to pardon my French, I'm just like, whatever, of course, yeah. Sure, you, you can't help anybody, especially when we are just, you know, hostile towards you. You, you, you can't do nothing. And it's naive to think to, to believe that you can, because you can't. You just can't save the whole world. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. Even some yeses he's found are kind of a no. That woman he evacuated who wanted to pack up grapes and pancakes, Valerie says he took her to a refugee center in a city called Kramatorsk. Um, it's about an hour away from her home. And she was so upset, Kuba told me. She wasn't happy about the leave. She, she asked me, I mean, why did I took her to such a wild place? She had this perspective that I, I don't know, tricked her or something. So she was upset. She was, you know, telling me that she wants to go back. And I was like, but city is dying. City is kaput. And she was like, okay, so I will die with, with, with the city. And I was like, okay, end of, end of, end of, end of conversation. What can I do? And they kind of lost touch for a little bit. And it turns out that she ended up having her relatives send her back east to Russian-occupied area where maybe it's not the front line, but it's due to be dangerous soon. And Kuba, after he heard that, he went back to her house just to, like, look at it. And he saw... The house he, he evacuated her from. That's right. And he went to look at it, and he saw that, like, Specifically, her apartment had been destroyed by another strike. And I think he, like, felt sort of the sense of validation, like, 
you would have been killed if I had not taken you out. But she was still sort of unhappy and ended up going back to an occupied region. What did she mean, a wild place? I think she meant that it wasn't home. That's what I really think she meant. But this show is not going to be about no's or yeses. It's about people weighing when to go. And one reason Cuba and others go back to the same city again and again is that sometimes a person who's been a no, 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 no for months is suddenly a yes, please. It is time. Valerie managed to reach someone Cuba helped get out of Bakhmut two months ago. That man, Roman, had been living there with his parents who were in their 70s. And he told Valerie what changed for him because he actually first met Cuba months ago and was like, now nah, we're good, even though things were bad. I almost got killed nine times in Bakhmut. I got caught in gunfire. I got caught in explosions in the center of the city while I was crossing the Nikolaevsky Bridge. Even there, I almost died. And at home, I almost died. I mean, it was really serious, you know? I'm telling you, nine times. You know, I was even talking to, to like, Ukrainian military, and I was telling them, you know, I kind of got used to it already. And they said, that's a bad habit. And then things got worse and worse and worse. And all of a sudden, like, the telephone wires by our house were all dangling. And then I saw that there was, like, gunfire on the, the houses, on the roads, on the fences. And then, you know, I just, like, went outside of my house and I just saw the bullets, like, ricocheting. And, and I just thought, you know, that's it. I don't think we'll make it. And I started talking to my parents, you know, I just don't think we'll make it. And I told them, we got to do something. It's either we leave or we die. They decided to go. And there's a video of this evacuation, too. Roman and his parents. Roman's father seems very frail. In the video, one of the evacuators is helping his father sort of shuffle backward over this metal beam that's a makeshift bridge over a river. The father is holding on and moving very slowly. And there was like an explosion. It was all black. And it was just like, you know, the house over, my neighbor's house, that it fell, the missile. And then when we got out of there, I just said, wow, look how quiet it is. Like, you can actually be here. You could just sit here and relax. And, and it was just like, it was where we lived that they were attacking, you know. And then when I got to Kramatorsk, I started looking around and I saw civilization and light, electricity, and the trolley buses working. And I just felt this, like, sense of elation, a smile across my face or something. Actually, the first time that they took these cookies out onto the table, I just, I felt so happy. It had been so long since I had even seen them, you know? Do you understand? I, I hadn't seen, like, loaves of bread. Like, sure, I had coffee, but still that was hard to come by, you know? And cookies, and I had forgotten what that tasted like. 
And it just felt so amazing to have them finally. But to be totally honest, I still yearn to go to my place, to my home. Today's show, When to Leave. How do you know when it's right to make a decision that is so often full of doubt, guilt, consequences for other people, and even afterward, sometimes forever afterward, regret and longing and second guesses? We have two stories today with high stakes and complicated choices. Stay with us. One, first, do no harm. Let's start right in with a calm, rational person assessing a new reality, getting a feel for what it means, and deciding what to do. Miki Meek reports. Amelia Huntsberger has a story she tells about what it's like to work at a small rural hospital. She's an OBGYN in northern Idaho, in a place called Sandpoint. And early on, she got called down to the emergency room to examine a woman The woman had passed out. She was hemorrhaging a lot of blood. She was miscarrying. I took her to the operating room, and I transfused a bunch of blood products, and her labs were starting to be a bit abnormal, and I asked for the lab to get me platelets. The nurse supervisor who was on that night said, oh, well, we don't have those. And I said, oh, we, we, don't, we don't have any platelets? Oh, no, we don't have those in the blood bank here. Oh. So she told me that we could get them from Spokane. And I was like, great, well, let's, let's activate that right away. And she said, oh, okay, um, yeah, they come by taxi. Like yellow cab taxi. Right? And I said, really? Seriously? Like, like Blood products are are going to be put in a cab and then come to the hospital from Spokane, which is an hour and a half away, and we're in the winter then. She said, yeah, they'll come by cab. Most doctors fresh off years of training at fancy urban hospitals might look at an experience like this and want to run from it. But for Amelia, this was her plan, her first choice. She grew up in a place like Sandpoint, beautiful, rural, surrounded by mountains. She did her first delivery in middle school. It was a baby lamb. She used to help her dad out during lambing season. And all through med school, she was like, why shouldn't people in rural places get the best care? Amelia is someone who generally takes stuff on if it needs doing. Whenever there's some unpaid committee job no one wants, Amelia signs up. Not in an ego way. It's more like, why wouldn't you do that? Amelia's husband, Vince, he works at the same hospital. He's an ER doctor. And he also grew up in a small town. They met in medical school and wanted to settle in a place like this because they knew rural hospitals desperately need doctors. Yes, practicing medicine here in Sandpoint means platelets arrive by taxi. But also, Amelia said, you really get to know your patients. It's nice running into them all over town. Half of the day is people that I know who I'm delighted. Like, what are the updates? When's your granddaughter coming home? When somebody comes up to me and wants in the grocery store and wants to ask a question about vaginal discharge, that's not awesome. But when a patient comes up to me and wants to show me, you know, her grandchild who I delivered, 
that's really delightful. Amelia's whole life is in Sandpoint. She and Vince have raised all three of their kids here. Recently, her parents moved here, too. But I've been talking to Amelia for months, over the phone and in person, not because she loves the place, but because she thinks it might be time to leave. Amelia did not see herself as an abortion care provider. She's a general OBGYN, so she sees everyone from teenagers to 90-year-olds. She does pap smears, prenatal care, breast exams, STIs, prescribes birth control, delivers babies. She's got the bulletin board to prove it. And right now, there are lots of stories about pregnant people dealing with the fall of Roe versus Wade and changes in state laws. But this story is about their doctors. I started calling OBGYNs when the Supreme Court overturned Roe because I wanted to know what their jobs are like now and how they're changing. And I started hearing about doctors who were thinking of leaving their states because of new laws that criminalize a whole range of common OBGYN care. Idaho is one of those states. It passed some of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country. No exceptions for the health of a pregnant person, no exceptions to save the life of a pregnant person. Like here's how State Senator Todd Lakey, one of the sponsors of the bill that would soon become law, talked about what should happen in the case of, for instance, a serious pregnancy complication. Um, If the decision was based solely on a question of some type of health, then you're talking about taking the life of the unborn child. So that weighs more heavily than simply health. Go ahead. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And just a follow-up. So just, uh, just, I guess, a yes or no. The health of the woman's irrelevant, yes or no? I would say it weighs less, yes, than um, the life of the child. Lots of people had concerns about the laws. Even the governor, who is anti-abortion, sent a letter to the state Senate saying that some parts of these bills would, quote, in short order, be proven both unconstitutional and unwise. He signed them into law anyway. Idaho's new laws are also some of the most punitive, toward doctors. They cover any pregnancy that has a, quote, fetal heartbeat. Though in the early stages, it's not a heartbeat in a normal sense. It's electrical activity in some tissue that will eventually become the heart. The sound you hear with an ultrasound machine, it's created by the machine. But that counts as far as the law is concerned. If a doctor does anything to terminate a pregnancy with a fetal heartbeat, they can be charged with a felony and imprisoned for up to five years. Even if, say, they have a patient who is miscarrying, bleeding uncontrollably, and they're trying to save their life. Also, there's this phrase in Idaho's new laws, affirmative defense. What this means is, in theory, the laws do allow for abortions in the case of rape, incest, or to save the life of a pregnant person. But if a doctor does that, they can be arrested and have to prove in court, would say, a report from the police attesting to rape, or somehow proof that their patient would have died. And a jury would have to agree. Under Idaho's new laws, it's kind of like doctors are assumed guilty, instead of assumed innocent until proven guilty. It doesn't sound legal, but it is. When the abortion ban went into effect, after Roe was overturned, Amelia's first thought was not, we gotta leave Sandpoint. She was not at that stage. The stage she was at was, let's fight. 
If enough doctors speak out, if people understand the reality, they will understand the dangers of these laws, and they'll want to change them. Amelia was already on a committee tracking maternal deaths. The state hadn't had one of those. She helped create one. She was also heading up the state chapter of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists, ACOG. No one else raised their hand to do it, but Amelia did. So naturally, when a lawsuit was filed against one of the new abortion laws in Idaho, Amelia was part of a coalition trying to change these laws. She knew the lawyers needed testimony from OBGYNs, laying out specific emergency medical care they'd been providing for years that now, under the new laws, was criminal. So I think, okay, well, I'm going to reach out to as many OBGYNs as I can think of and have contact information to and just see if anybody would be willing, you know, to make a declaration. And then I, I kind of realize I myself have provided care like this. So Amelia, who had started out trying to find other OBGYNs to write about their experiences to help change these new laws, instead started writing about herself her own medical practice. She'd never thought of herself in the same category as providers of so-called elective abortions, what happens in abortion clinics. She thought of that as a different thing, even though she'd written the word abortion in her patient's medical charts for years. The medical term for miscarriages before 20 weeks is spontaneous abortion. About one in five pregnancies end this way. So she treats patients for this all the time. Anti-abortion rhetoric had so effectively separated abortion from health care that in a way, they'd gotten separated in Amelia's head too. Amelia signed her declaration and submitted it. Her written experiences and those of other OBGYNs, it all made a difference in the strictness of the law, a small but significant one. The day before the trigger laws in Idaho were about to go into effect, a federal judge agreed to allow emergency abortion procedures that go through actual emergency rooms. For now. Did that feel like a big win? Yeah. Tremendous relief. Hopeful. You know, that felt like, okay, somebody is really seeing this with a clear eye and a rational mind. And is like, well, obviously this, you know, this doesn't make sense. Every other part of the laws still went into effect the very next day. And around that time, the idea of leaving popped into Amelia's mind for the very first time. She popped it right back out. Hold up. Like, pause. Like, let's just see. Let's just see. Let's just see. You know, the circumstances in Idaho are not set in stone. Things are still changing and moving. And so let's see kind of where this goes. Surely this is going to be reined in. This is the same calculation some of the other doctors I've talked to are making. Wait and see. But one of the things they're all waiting and seeing about is, who will be the first OBGYN put on trial and possibly put in prison for providing health care to one of their patients? Amelia, back at work, had a whole bunch of new stuff to sort through, in her mind, with these laws. The new laws defined abortion as the use of any means to intentionally terminate a clinically diagnosable pregnancy. So, ectopic pregnancies, for example, came up all the time in her clinic. An ectopic pregnancy means 
A fertilized egg is sitting outside of the uterus and sometimes has what the law calls a fetal heartbeat. It's not viable. It can be fatal. And the longer it sits there, the more danger the patient is in. What am I supposed to do with a patient like this? Do I need to, you know, per the total abortion ban, I need to wait until she's really sick. I can't act just to protect her health. I should be waiting until I'm saving her life. This is totally opposite of my medical training. Her medical training was try to stop things before they become life-threatening. The solution used to be straightforward. She'd remove ectopic pregnancies with a quick surgical procedure or inject a drug that would end the pregnancy. One day, Amelia had a patient like that. Their pregnancy test was positive, but Amelia could not find a fertilized egg in their uterus. An injection was clearly the best option. So while the patient was in the exam room, Amelia started calling administrators at her hospital, asking, can I do this? She later talked to some lawyers about what she could do in this kind of situation. One answer that I got was that it's probably 90% safe legally. What does that mean? So you're saying I have a 1 in 10 chance of spending two years in jail with a felony? Is, is that what you're telling me right now? And 1 in 10 sounds pretty risky. Right. I got three kids. I, I mean, what? that's not reassuring to me. It's also not a definite answer. It's like, well, you know, like that. And then I have, you know, another lawyer who I've been in contact with who says, take care of the patient. Do what you've been trained to do. Take care of the patient. Amelia advised her patient to go to the ER. The ER. Chaotic, impersonal, and usually more expensive for the patient. But that's the only workaround she had to make sure the patient got the care they needed while protecting herself under these new laws. Amelia started sending all of her ectopic pregnancies to the ER. Here's another thing Amelia realized about the way the laws are set up. Even though ER doctors in Idaho should theoretically be protected from criminal prosecutions, a prosecutor could still decide to try and charge her husband Vince anyways. And under the law as it stands, people can definitely sue doctors, including ER doctors, for damages. So it was dawning on Amelia that it was possible that she and Vince could both now be sued by multiple family members of a, quote, preborn child. The father of the preborn child, a grandparent of the preborn child, a sibling of the preborn child, or an aunt or uncle of the preborn child. So when I read this, does this mean that the father of a rapist, that the sister of a rapist, that the brother of the rapist can sue the physician? It absolutely does. Family members can each file individual separate lawsuits asking for a minimum of $20,000. And they have up to four years to file a lawsuit. All right, back to the language of the law. Statutory damages in an amount not less than $20,000. So just take note, instead of having here's the ceiling, this is the maximum, we start with a minimum payout. 
So all of that was on Amelia's mind when another patient came into the clinic. She had an ectopic pregnancy that ruptured. Amelia put a camera into her patient's abdomen. And I'm like, oh my gosh, there is way more blood than there was described on the ultrasound that this person had 60 minutes ago. Like, we have got to move quickly. The bleeding could kill her. And the way to stop the bleeding was to abort the pregnancy, which was never going to be viable anyway. You know, when you do surgery like that, or it's an emergency and somebody's having ongoing active bleeding, that's already high stress. And that sort of high stress, like I trained for that. I know what to do with that. I can handle that. Then you add in this other weird layer of like, is her brother going to not understand that this was a not viable pregnancy and that her life was at risk? And like, what about her mom? What about her partner? What about her sister? Like, do these people understand how serious this condition is? Or do they only understand that I removed a pregnancy that had a heartbeat? I don't know. How am I supposed to know? She started looking at her patients' charts as evidence she might need in court. She wrote down words like life-threatening and high chance of mortality for some theoretical future lawsuit. Another case. A patient came in to see her for a biopsy of the lining of their uterus. Amelia found herself worrying. Wait, what if she's pregnant? The person had mentioned they hadn't been using contraception. And so then... I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. When was her last menstrual period? Like, we're definitely doing a urine pregnancy test, but, like, what's the plausibility that there could be a pregnancy that isn't detectable yet? You know, super, super early stages. And so... In these early stages, a P-test is not definitive. It can still come up as negative. If I had a quarter for every single time that somebody said, there's no way I'm pregnant, and then, you know, has a positive pregnancy test, then, you know, I'd be rich. If there was any chance that this patient was pregnant, a biopsy could inadvertently terminate this patient's potential pregnancy. So there's part of me that's like, we should not do anything today. She needs to use effective contraception for a month and then come back, you know, and then I can do this procedure once I'm really sure that she's not pregnant. But that's also really impractical for this person who's driven hours to come see me and Further, she has a medical problem that needs attention. She's already waited to see me. This visit has nothing to do with pregnancy. Amelia didn't send her back. She treated her. This is what it means for Amelia to have these laws in her head all the time. To have to think of every single person who enters her office as pregnant, or possibly pregnant. To have that become her constant focus. More and more, she's finding that what she believes is good care, the kind she's obliged to provide under medical malpractice laws, is in direct conflict with what the new laws say. And she knows these laws are in her patients' minds, too, because they're asking her, will I get in trouble for this or that? Is this legal? Worrying about that, on top of whatever actual medical problem they came to her for. In other states, there have already been numerous reports about doctors delaying care for pregnant patients, or even turning them away, because of new laws criminalizing OBGYN care. Some patients have almost died and ended up in the ICU. Amelia and her husband for months were pinning their hopes on Idaho's Supreme Court overturning the state's abortion laws. That was their big wait and see. While in the back of her mind, 
there was this growing, nagging feeling. Will we be able to keep living here if the court's decision doesn't go our way? You know, I'm just like so agitated as I'm describing all of this. And, you know, like the intensity level is just so high for me. And my friend says, well, so when do you just like put this all down and just take a break? And I'm I'm thinking like, what, what does she mean? Take a break? How can I take a break? You know, I'm like literally vibrating out of my body. I mean, that's also a problem, that inability to kind of escape this. I don't know how to put it down. You know, just sort of this like walking around and like whether at work or at home and just like these like deep sighs, just feeling like there, say I do it without even like, you know, thinking about it. She was having trouble sleeping, a first for her. You know, laying awake at night and thinking about this or that. And I think just like the tension that you're holding in your body or having to think about taking a deep breath because you've been holding your breath all day. Amelia and Vince have had some wild conversations in the last few months. They have talked about the possibility that both of them could end up in jail or face multiple lawsuits with potentially massive civil penalties or lose their medical licenses. Chances are probably small, but also it's impossible to be sure. What happens if both of us are in jail for two years? Who's raising our kids? I mean, we know, yeah, we have a plan for our kids, like, if that happened. What is your plan? You know, family. (laughs) She didn't want to say more about who exactly their kids, 11, 8, and 6 years old, would go to. It was the first time I'd seen her look physically uncomfortable answering a question. She kind of pursed her lips and shook her head no. She just couldn't go there. A couple months ago, a few things happened that moved the idea of leaving from the back of Amelia's mind to the front. The first took place in a car parked outside the state capitol in Boise. She was with another OBGYN. They'd been talking to the people in the governor's office about expanding Medicaid coverage for people who'd just given birth. So they were sitting in Amelia's rental car, and her friend turned to her. And she had told me at that point that she was kind of deciding between different job options job options in another state. This was a huge blow to Amelia. She'd been a key ally in this fight. Then, right after that conversation, Amelia caught up with another friend, a lawyer, who'd also been fighting these laws. Amelia remembers her saying, I haven't told many people this yet, but, you know, I'm planning to leave. Like, so in the same day, in Boise, these two people who I respect and admire and trust told me this state is not a place for me anymore. And I, I'm planning my exit. And then the state Supreme Court ruling she and her husband Vince had been waiting for came down. Emily was at home and on her day off when it happened. I happened to look at my email And there was this message from one of the lawyers that just said in the subject line, like, Supreme Court decision out, not good, we'll follow up later. And it was, you know, I just kind of was panicked of like, what what, what does this mean? You know, and then so I'm trying to do this Google search, nothing comes up. And so then I'm like, well, I got to go, I got to pick up my kids. So I get my car and I drive to school pickup. And then 
I'm waiting in line and you're like, the car's in park. Then I pull up my emails again to just try to see, can I find anything about this? And then other people are, you know, linking to a summary and this and that. And I'm sobbing, right? Like I, you know, it's just like, you know, the Supreme Court in Idaho believes that all three abortion laws are constitutional. The court carved out one small exception, ectopic pregnancies, but not miscarriages, not deadly fetal anomalies, or anything else. Amelia broke the news to Vince. She says the first question he asked her was, "You know, is this is this it? Like, is this the is this the tipping point?" Was his question to me, "Is this a place that we can continue to live and practice medicine and raise our family?" What'd you say? Yeah, I think I'm I'm not at the tipping point yet. And I, I asked back to him, like, are you? Is this like the nail in the coffin for you? Like, are are you done? And you know, we're not there yet, right? Like we're not at the tipping point yet. Do you know what your tipping point is? No. <laughs> I'm I'm not I'm not sure. I Obviously, this Supreme Court decision is a is a big blow, and I don't know exactly where that line is of what I can tolerate. Vince's job in the ER still had some protection. That federal court ruling still holds for now, allowing emergency abortion procedures that go through actual emergency rooms. But everything felt precarious. Amelia and Vince now talk about leaving almost every day. Sometimes leaving can be an act of protest. But Amelia feels like it would be a retreat, a giving in. Like, I can save myself, but I'd be leaving my patients behind. She's worried that if she left, her clinic could collapse. She's one of only four OBGYNs, and one of the others is thinking about leaving too. Amelia says if they did leave first, she'd probably have to leave too. If Amelia or one of her colleagues does leave Sandpoint, the options for finding a replacement are bleak. The last time an OBGYN left her clinic, it took them two years to find another one. And that was before Roe fell. Idaho already has a severe shortage of doctors, one of the worst in the country. I was, you know, looking at social media and somebody was talking about um, a person who was completing their OBGYN residency and was looking to come to the Pacific Northwest. And there was all this, hey, we've got an opening in Washington. We've got an opening in Oregon. We've got openings in Montana. And I'm like, hey, there's all sorts of openings in Idaho. And then I'm like laughing out loud because I'm like, who is going to be finishing their residency training and being like, I definitely want to go to the state with the super strict abortion laws that criminalize health care. I mean, I just, I like literally laughed out loud. And like, that's awful, right? Like, I'm laughing about how ridiculous it is that somebody would choose to come and practice medicine here. That's terrible. Like, that should be very alarming to anyone. But I didn't, I was like, it's like you laugh so you don't cry. Like, I don't even know, you know, I just, yeah. Did you post, there's tons of openings in Idaho, or you, did you know better? I sure did. And I was like, I mean, but then you have to deal with the laws here. But I'm like, legit, if you're willing to deal with the laws, I will hook you up. I know all the people who are looking like I got you, but you're not going to want to come here. Are you kidding me? I know that. I mean, if you do want to come here, cool. Like, like I said, I'll help you. If one is never leave and 10 is 
we got to go. Like, where are you on that spectrum right now? I don't know how to answer that. What makes it hard? I don't want to leave here. You know, and, and just um, turning it into something more black and white, like a number scale does, um, feels hard. I mean, I don't want to leave, but I don't know if I can stay. Some doctors have decided to leave. I talked to two OBGYNs. One had just left Texas, the other Tennessee. Their jobs are different from Amelia's because they're high-risk OBs, and so they're seeing some of the most difficult cases. They told me they were just like Amelia when new abortion laws went into effect in their states. They also wanted to stay, and they also didn't know what their tipping point was and wanted to keep treating their patients. And each of them described the same kind of moment to me. One day, they found themselves in a terrible situation with a patient, brought on by trying to comply with the new laws. One of them had to send a patient to another state in an ambulance. It was a five-hour ride. The patient's blood pressure was rising. And by the time she got to a hospital, her kidneys were starting to fail. The other doctor had to turn away a patient pregnant with twins. One of the twins was going to die, and the doctor needed to intervene to save the other's life. But he couldn't because of the laws. He doesn't know what happened to the patient, but he knew, I need to leave. Miki Meek, she's one of the producers of our show. Coming up, is there a statute of limitations on telling a friend, I thought you were way off base? We'll find out. Together, that's in a minute, from Chicago Public Radio, when our program continues. It's This American Life. I'm Nancy Updike, sitting in for Ira Glass. Today's show, When to Leave, or if, we're at Act 2 of 2. Act 2, The Leaving Expert. The whole idea for this show came from me reading a story by Masha Gessen a New Yorker story. Masha is a staff writer there. Reports a lot on Russia, among many other subjects. Masha grew up in the Soviet Union, then moved to the United States as a teenager and lives here now. The New Yorker story was all about leaving, about Russians leaving Russia. Masha was just about to board a plane to Russia when Russia invaded Ukraine a year ago. And almost immediately after landing, Masha started hearing from people, from friends, about leaving. I'm trying to think who the first person was. I think it was actually Vera, um, my closest friend. And I think the, the conversation was sort of, you know, we're thinking of leaving, we're thinking of getting tickets to Georgia. Vera has his family in Georgia. Um, do you think we should go now or in a couple of months when our 16-year-old gets her foreign travel passport? Um was it still going to be viable to leave in a couple of months? Were they going to close the borders? But it still felt almost abstract. And then, like, a couple of days later, she said, we're leaving Wednesday. And then, while Masha was at Vera's place for their goodbye gathering... Another mutual friend of ours came by, and he was sort of saying, why do you feel like you have to leave? Like, what's, uh, what's the big deal? Mm. Um, there's always time. 
Not an unreasonable question, Masha thought at the time. That night, overnight, more leaving. Masha went to the last independent television station in Russia, TV Rain, and saw a whole scene unfolding. Staffers at the station had gotten word that the prosecutor's office was investigating TV Rain for, quote, extremism, which meant any one of them could go to jail for years. Staffers also heard that special forces were coming to search the studios. Other media outlets had been searched before, and people had been roughed up. So staff members who were at the station ran out of the building, sort of huddled in a pub outside, trying to book tickets on their cell phones. So there was like this sort of call and response where people would be like, Bishkek, two tickets, you know, I'm grabbing right, those. Right, like an auction. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't even an auction. It's I mean, I to... know they weren't auctioning them off, but the sort of but, but yeah, there was, there, there was, there, yeah, there was, and, and, um, and a sense of a rush and just like, you know, very adrenaline-y and very desperate. And then the next day, I went to visit other friends. And uh, and I walked in and I realized, oh, this is their goodbye party. My God. And and so the friend from the night before, the one who had been asking, you know, what's the point, was also there. Uh, and he said, I'm leaving tomorrow. And that was just, you know, like, uh, I mean, he looked like he was shell-shocked. Um, mm-hmm. Because... I think that there, something had changed inside him. That it, From one day to the next. From one day to the next, and he wasn't even... He couldn't process what had changed. He knew it had changed, and he knew he was leaving, and he was shocked by what he was doing. Within a week, all of Masha's friends had left Russia. All of them. And I don't want to say that they're running for their lives, which is another very important aspect of this, of this whole emigration, is because people are acutely aware that they um, that they're not running for their lives. That they're in fact other people who were running for their lives at that very same time in Ukraine because of the same war, yeah, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But um, but that they're running f- to to salvage their sense of selves and 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 to be able to be in the world. It's hard to gauge how many Russians have left the country in the last year. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. It's a lot, whatever it is. People have left for all sorts of reasons. One reason? New laws. There were a couple of different laws that they passed um, a week after the full-scale invasion began. One that made it punishable to call the war a war, and another was that made it a crime to discredit the armed forces of Oof. Russia. Right? And that's one of those, <laughs> that's one of those wide, you know, exactly. wide-angle laws that... You can do that without realizing that's what you're doing, uh, you know, if somebody really wants to That's exactly make the case. right, right? So in a way, it's a more insidious law than, than, than the, you know, because calling a war a war, I mean, you know what you're supposed to do, you're not, you know what you're not supposed to do. But, of course, terror works much more effectively through laws that are <clears throat> vague and that can't possibly be uniformly applied. There's another reason I wanted to talk to Masha in particular about leaving. Masha is a bit of a leaving expert, like I said, not just as a reporter, but in their own life. Masha has moved countries three times, 
each time with no idea if they would ever live there again. The first time was when Masha was 14 years old and the whole family left the Soviet Union to come to America. Then Masha moved back to Russia in the 90s. They went in 1991 on a reporting assignment. The Soviet Union was in the final stages of unmaking itself. And what was left was the most exciting place on earth to Masha. It was Russia remaking itself. Masha also felt something unexpected there. They felt at home, a profound experience after so long away. Masha spent the next 22 years living there, loved it, never wanted to leave. And then Masha did leave Russia and moved back here. Seeing their friends leave now reminded Masha of just how hard that decision had been, to know when to leave. It was also about new laws. Even when they were considering the first law against so-called LGBT propaganda to minors, it seemed so absurd, right? This was back in 2012. Uh, and I was like, I was supposed to testify. This was still at a time when one, uh, one like someone like me might go and testify in the Human Rights Council. And then the person who was organizing the hearing said, yeah, just, you know, there's no way they're going to pass it. We're not going to hold a hearing. Let's, let, let's, let's, let's not draw more attention to it. And then, of course, they passed it. And the parliament started talking about removing children from families. And I went to protest and got beaten up. And, you know, it's not like it was news, right? But I'd never actually been beaten up before. So, Do you um, think you were targeted it, specifically? Or yes, you... I was definitely targeted specifically. Uh, like in broad daylight with the police looking on. It's, it's a profound experience, even if you know that that sort of thing happens to, to other people, um, even people you know. Uh, and... And then they passed a law banning adoption by people who are in same-sex relationships or have citizenships of countries where same-sex marriage is legal. And my oldest son is adopted. So then it was just like, you know, we have to leave. Uh, and That now we, describes y you and your family so specifically. Exactly. So we put my oldest son on a plane, and then... How old was he? He was 14. 14 is the same age Masha was when the family left the Soviet Union. A whole cycle of leaving and leaving again. Masha told me that in the mix of feelings they've had in the last year seeing and talking to friends who've left Russia is a strange kind of relief. In a way, you know, the world has become kind of mentally more... Um, it, it, it makes more sense, right? We're, to you. To, to me and to us as, as a group that we're like on the same side of not only the mental border but the, but the physical border. For years after Masha left, while friends stayed, Masha sometimes wondered, worried, did I make the right call by leaving? Could I have stayed too? There was a nagging thought of like, oh, well, maybe it was possible to live there. And so maybe I overreacted. Uh, maybe maybe I was hysterical about Putin. I mean, he's terrible, but how terrible is he? And now a lot of that is just, that's, that's, just, that's just gone. Like he is as terrible as, 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 as anyone has ever been. Um, I was definitely not hysterical 
Uh, and no, it wasn't actually possible to have a life there. And um, are people saying that to you? Like, is anyone saying to you, you know, I thought actually you were a little off the deep end, like, and now I now I see what you mean or something? Yeah, yeah, people have said that. Uh, and and it's funny because I even heard it from people who didn't actually say to me, you know, you're crazy years ago, but now said, okay, yeah, I thought you were a little, uh, maybe overreacting a little, but I was wrong. Um. These conversations just seem so strange to me. To have somebody say that and to, I I don't know, it seems so sad. It's like, ah, yeah, I kind of wish you were right. I wish I had exactly. overreacted. Exactly. Um, and, I mean, that was always my sort of go-to phrase. Like, you know, I'll be really happy if you prove me wrong. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, just if I'm being emotionally honest about it, um, yes, of, course please. I, of course I don't wish I'd been, uh, I'd overreacted. Because the amount of regret I'd have if I'd overreacted would be unmanageable. So it's not like I'm, you know, I'm full of schadenfreude for, for, for having told you so. Um, but there's a, yeah, there's an odd sort of emotional peace uh, with having things fall into place. I asked Masha if they ever think about leaving this country. Masha had a few different answers to that. My brain bookmarked this one. I mean, dissidents, Soviet dissidents were great for setting down rules to live by. And I think one of the rules was um, you're useless in prison or dead. But as long as you're not in prison or dead and you're not, you know, you're not facing a significant risk of going to prison or being dead, make a difference where you are. Um, I think that's a pretty, like, this country is so far from our losing the ability to make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I wonder if, if you, if you have an eye on, on laws changing here. I mean, you know, laws that would feel threatening to you personally. I mean, I think that when, um, once you've emigrated once in your life, it's always a possibility. So yeah, it's, you know, even though I, I'm not actively thinking about leaving the United States, um, it's not it's not a crazy possibility for me. Right? It could happen. Um, I mean, personally, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated because I have kids here and two right. of them are semi-grown. So, um, so then you become, you know, you, you start having other kinds of roots. Um, but if, for example, um, and this is not a, a terribly unlikely scenario, you know, it becomes impossible um, to get hormone treatment in this country. You know, that for me would be a, a question of my personal health, and I'd probably actually have to leave. Yeah. When I first started making this show, I imagined it being about leaving all sorts of places. But it's all about the same place, home, a place you love. If you're lucky, you have some choice in the matter and time to think about it. But it's a choice to break your own heart.
Said it's none of my business, but it breaks my heart I dropped a dozen cheap roses in my shopping cart Made it out to the truck without breaking down Everybody knows you in a speed trap It's a Thursday night, but there's a high school game Sneak a bottle off the bleachers and forget my name These five air bastards run a shallow cross It's a boy's last dream and a man's first loss And it never did occur to me Till tonight There's no one left To ask if I'm alright I'll sleep until I'm Straight enough to drive Then decide If there's anything That can't be left behind Today's show was produced by Diane Wu and Chris Benderev. The people who put together today's show include... Jane Ackerman, Fia Benin, Zoe Chase, Sean Cole, Michael Comite, Avivit Kornfeld, Cassie Howley, Valerie Kipnis, Seth Lind, Allah Mustafa, Stone Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Nadia Raymond, Ryan Rummery, Alyssa Ship, Elise Spiegel, Lily Sullivan, Christopher Swatala, Marisa Robertson Texter, and Matt Tierney. The managing editor is Sara Abdurrahman. Senior editor is David Kessenbaum. Our executive editor is Emmanuel Berry. Special thanks to Agnieszka Sushko, Kylie Cooper, Wendy Hype, Leila Zahedi Spung, Ali Reza Shamshirsas, Allison Block, Kate Connors, Rachel Kingery, Mary Ziegler, David Childs, and Cheryl Strayed. Our website, thisamericanlife.org, where you can stream our archive of over 750 episodes for absolutely free. Again, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, and happy birthday, Ira, to our boss, Ira Glass. You know, I once saw him get recognized for his voice, and he does have mixed feelings sometimes about the questions people ask when they recognize him in public. When somebody comes up to me and wants in the grocery store and wants to ask a question about vaginal discharge, that's not awesome. I'm Nancy Updike. Join us next week for more stories of this American life. Thousand miles away.